point, his family is returning home from some time away. When you give to support uh, the March for Missions, which we'll be hosting here on December 17th in both of our worship services, you are supporting missionaries like you saw in that video, people who are committed to taking the gospel uh, to the nations, people who are committed to engaging lost people around the world so that they can hear the gospel and by God's grace be saved and then maybe take the gospel back to their homes, their homeland, and share the gospel as well. So we encourage you, church. Some are already giving, and that's great. And some will give just on that one day, December 17th. We're going to ask you to come and give in this March for Missions offering. And some will give uh, really through the end of January. We uh, encourage you to give sacrificially and cheerfully and generously for the sake of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Uh, Our goal this year, as you know, is $175,000. And we believe that by God's grace, we will meet and... Lord willing, exceed that goal. Well, if you will, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Now, at the risk of offending anyone in this room who might be a connoisseur of chicken fingers, I have to admit that I've never eaten at Raising Cane's. All right? Now, I've heard a lot about it. I hear it's the best chicken finger in the world, but I keep thinking to myself whenever I hear that conversation, we're talking about chicken fingers here. Chicken fingers. I'm intrigued by the name of the restaurant. The term raising Cain, and listen, I know it's spelled differently, has long been associated with trouble. It's long been associated with causing an uproar. Raising Cain is about violence, right? According to the definitive source on the subject, Wikipedia, uh, raising Cain finds its origins, at least in its common day terms, with Uh, the 14th century and how uh, spirits are conjured up through incantations and and witchcraft. We understand, though, that the origins of this idea of Cain, raising Cain, is from Genesis chapter 4, right? Genesis chapter 4, where the first murder in human history takes place when Cain kills his brother Abel. Now, this morning, we're going to continue our series through 1 John And in this passage that we're going to look at today, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, John is drawing a comparison between Christ and Cain. Between love and hate. Between life and death. And by the way, if you were planning to go to Raising Cain's for lunch today, it's okay. You're not involving yourself in witchcraft or kind of... You're not not involving yourself with trouble, so feel free, go, it's not a big deal, right? Listen, I was really interested in this, so I did some research. The the restaurant was actually named after the man's dog. The man had a dog, a yellow lab, named Raising Cane, right? Well, that dog has since died, and he got another one, and they named that dog Raising Cane too. So there you go. There's the history on the restaurant. I ought to get free chicken fingers for a year at this point, Right? Okay, please stand. We're going to read together 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Lord, as we gather, we do so humbly before you, and we do so expecting that your spirit will do great work in our lives, in us, and among us, and through us, all for your glory. So God, even today, I pray that your word would challenge us. I pray that your spirit would help us to see, would transform us into the likeness of Christ, so that we would love like Christ, and not like Cain. God, do this work, we pray, for your glory. Amen. And you may be seated. Now, last week we saw John... Uh, contrasting the children of God with the children of the devil. And we saw specifically this contrast over this idea of righteousness. That those who are in Christ, those who have been made alive by the Spirit, those who are walking in the light, will live in a righteous way. They will live in a way that accords with good deeds. That they will seek to follow after Jesus Christ. And those who still abide in the darkness of death, in their sins, will not. No, their deeds will be evident. It will be clear because the tree has not been made good by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that their deeds are evil. They are characterized by the practicing of sin. So righteousness is an identifying mark of those who are in Christ, but there's something else. Look there at the end of verse 10, chapter 3 and verse 10. By this it is evident who the children of God and who, the children, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, but then notice this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So now John is clarifying, he's adding, he's saying, look, you want to know who the children of God are? It's the people who love their brother. Actually, he takes a negative stance here. He says, look, if you are not a child of God, then that will be clear because you will not love your brother. Now, let me just make this very clear. When John is speaking of brothers here, verse 10 there, we see this in verse 11, we talk about hating and loving. I believe he's really primarily referring to other Christians, right? Christian brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not to say that we're not to have a general love for all people. We are. And it's not to say that it's okay if we hate others. We're never called, it's never okay to hate others. But the Apostle John, I believe here, is prioritizing the relationship amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are to love one another. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 when he says, Look, we're to, we're to do good to everyone, but especially to the household of the faith. To those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And we should also note this. When John is talking about loving one another, he's talking about agape love. This is the kind of selfless love that is 
not based on anything that we might get back from someone else. This is a sacrificial love. This is a giving love, right? This is the love of a mother with a newborn child, with an infant, with a baby. When that child can't do anything for the mother, but she gives of her time and her energy and herself to care for and to love. This is a love that stands behind adoption. Right Where a family freely chooses to bring in someone who is not part of their family, but to make them part of their family. Great benefit to someone else. All based on an internal compulsion to love. Now we'll see this momentarily, but this is the love that God has for His children. And we should also know that this is the second time that the Apostle really focuses in on this topic of love as a characteristic of the children of God. Uh, In chapter 2, John associates love with light and hate with darkness. In chapter 2, in verse 9, the Apostle John writes, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever says that he is in the light... And who is following Jesus Christ, who is saved, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness of sin, is apart from faith in Christ. There is no spiritual life. That's what he's saying. So friends, the first heading this morning is this. Love characterizes the children of God. Love characterizes the children of God. John writes in verse 11, This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What what he's saying is this, you don't have to look for a new revelation. You don't have to listen to those Gnostic teachers. No, what you need to do is listen to the message that you heard from the beginning, because the message you heard from the beginning is the message of love. It is the gospel of love, right? That God would adopt us into His family is love. I mean, it's one thing that God would forgive sinners of their sin. That's one thing. That's one thing that God would not hold our sin against us. We who have committed treason against Him, that's one thing. But, but it's, it's unfathomable that the God of the universe would call us to Himself and adopt us into His family. Friends, and to know that this all came through the death of His Son... That this came through the death of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe? How can we even comprehend that? But that's why we see that love is foundational to Christianity. Love is foundational to Christianity. Why? Because God Himself is love. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, consider that it is God's nature to love, that God's nature is love, then love must be true of those who have been born of God, right? And considering that we have God's Spirit indwelling us, living in us, the Spirit of adoption that has made us in Christ, 
born again in Christ, brought into the family of God as brothers of Christ, it just makes sense then that love is foundational to Christianity. And friends, Jesus tells us, recorded in the Gospel of John, that others, the world around us, will know that we are His disciples, Jesus' disciples, when we love one another. John chapter 13. When we love one another, right? Our love for one another gives evidence to the world, to other people, of our connection with Jesus. And if love is foundational to Christianity, then it follows, friends, that love is proof of spiritual life. Love is proof of spiritual life. Look again with me at verse 14, if you will. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love agape, the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Now, ultimately, John is just talking about what he heard Jesus say. Because Jesus spoke of this transference of kingdoms. Jesus spoke of passing from death to life. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He has passed from death to life. This is what, this is what John is getting at here. We know. We know that we have passed from the realm or for the region of death into the realm or the region of life. And here he says, because we love. Because we love. Colin Cruz, a commentator, suggests that to pass over means to step into a different sphere or region. From the region of judgment and condemnation to the region of forgiveness and acceptance being brought into the family of God. Before Christ... Before we placed our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, we were in the realm of death, the realm of darkness, the realm of condemnation because of our rebellion to God. But by God's grace, through believing the gospel, we passed out of death and into life. And it's not that we have life because we love. It's not that we are saved because we love. We love because we have spiritual life. We love because we have been saved. We can agape because God has agape us. We can follow what John is calling us to here because God's Spirit lives in us and enables us to follow after Jesus Christ. John Stott suggests that love is the surest test of having spiritual life. It's like going to the doctor or going to the hospital. None of us here likes to go to the hospital. None of us likes to go to the doctor. But when you go, what can you count on? You can count on the fact that they're going to test your vital signs. Just a given. And they charge a lot of money just to test your vital signs, don't they? You can count on it. Physically speaking, the vital signs are signs of life. Spiritually speaking, love is a sign of spiritual life. And note also that John's emphasis here, Jesus in John 13, his emphasis, others will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. But here, John's emphasis is, you'll know. 
By this we know that we have passed out of death and into life, right? It's self-assurance, it's self-awareness, right? Whereas the false teachers were claiming some special knowledge is foundational to knowing that they are saved. John is saying, no, if you want to know if you're right with God, then look at your life. Then look at your life. Do you love like Christ? That's what he's saying. If you want to know, look at your life. Do you love like Christ? Because if you are saved by faith, then you will love. That's what John's saying to us here. Friends, that's why at Trinity Baptist Church we define a disciple as someone who loves like Jesus and someone who lives like Jesus and someone who teaches others to be like Jesus. Right? Because righteousness and because love are essential aspects of being followers of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John's saying to us? Isn't that what we've seen the last two weeks? Last week and this week? Righteousness and love. All by God's grace, all by the Spirit's doing. But if that's not present in your life, then you have reason to be concerned, friends. Scripture argues that a practical righteousness and a love and agape are aspects of following Jesus Christ, which leads us to the next thought here. Love is exemplified in Christ. Love is exemplified in Christ. Let's look at verse 16, if you will. By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You can read brothers and sisters. You can read fellow Christians there. By this we know love. In other words, we can't even know what this kind of love is apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot know true love in its fullest dimension apart from seeing and knowing Jesus Christ. That's what John is telling us here. When we were his enemies, when we were enemies of God in rebellion against God, Jesus Christ, God himself, the God who took on flesh, died for us. We were his enemies, friends. We didn't deserve his love. We didn't deserve his grace. We could never earn it. We could never pay him back. God's love has more to do with who he is than who we are. However, it's an inescapable conclusion that God's love will transform who we are. God's love will transform who we are, right? That's the next thing we see. Love is something we do. Love is something we do. Isn't that what he's saying there in verses 17 and 18? Look, if you see a brother in need and you have the, the world's goods and you can meet that need, yet you choose not to meet that need, how can the love of God be in you? How can you have experienced the love of God? How can you say that you are in the light? That's what he's getting at here, friends. He tells us we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the Christians, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to lay down our lives. It's a hard word, right? But what John is telling us is that love is more than just words. Love is proven in action. Love is proven in action. Listen, it's so easy to claim that we would be willing to lay down our lives for someone. It's easy to claim that. And it's 
easy to say, I love you. It's easy to say that. But John's telling us, don't just give lip service to it. Don't just give lip service to it. Talk is cheap. What John is saying is this. Your love is not love if it doesn't move you to help and to serve and to care for and to sacrifice and to give for others. It's not love. It's not agape love if it is not that. And this is what John is calling. This is what Jesus is calling us to. If you see a brother in need and you're able to provide for that need, yet you are unwilling to provide for that need, you are proving that you don't love that brother or sister in Christ. That's what John is saying. If you close your heart, if you turn away from that. Now, friends, he's not saying we don't have to discern. He's not saying we shouldn't discern genuine needs. He's not saying that you're going to be able to meet every need. That's not what he's saying. Listen, Jesus walked on this earth and he did not heal every sick person he came across. He didn't. So, yes, there is room to discern what are genuine needs. And listen, we understand in our society that's a real relative thought, isn't it? What's a genuine need? But what he's saying is if your heart is characterized by being closed towards the towards the the needs and the situations of others, then how can the love of God be in you? And we need to hear this, friends. I think it's incumbent upon every one of us in this room who claims to be a Christian to ask God's Spirit to show us where we are just giving lip service to love. In every relationship that we have, friends, in our marriages... Where are we just giving lip service to love? With our children, where are we just giving lip service to love? With our church members, where are we just giving lip service to love? With the persecuted church, people we we may never meet, where are we just giving lip service to love? Through the gospel and the ministry efforts of this church, where are we just giving lip service to love? To missionaries around the world, where are we just giving lip service to love when we know there is a need, but we're unwilling to live in order to meet that need or to help to meet that need? To non-believers, friends, just extending the application The implications of this text to non-believers. When we see non-believers, are we willing to love? Are we willing to serve? Let's not forget that Jesus died for us when we were non-believers in rebellion against Him. How will we love? How will we give? Listen, some of us are so consumed with materialism that we... Don't have the means to give. We got payments for this car and payments for this house and payments for that, that we've closed ourselves in a box and we can just tidily say, well, you know, if I had money, I would give it. Well, friends, live in such a way that allows you to give to serve others, to love others. Because your excuses before God don't matter. God, my house payment's too big. I don't have any money left over to help other people. 
I can't, I can't give money to help the, the lost hear the gospel because, well, I just have too much debt in my life. Well, get out of debt. Do something about it. Do you love? Yes, you do love. You love yourself. If that's how you live your life, spending all your money on yourself, then you love yourself and not the gospel. You love yourself and not Christ. John is calling us to love like Christ, not like Cain. Okay, if love is characteristic of God's children, then hate is characteristic of the children of God. Hate characterizes the children of God. Hate characterizes children of the devil. I'm sorry. Man. There I go, raising Cain this morning, right? (laughs) Bobby's back there running the the screen. He's like, what are you talking about? He didn't want to put that up there. He thought I pulled a change here. Audible, no. Hate characterizes the children of the devil. All right? Amen. There you go. All right, 1 John 2, verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness. Now, let's be clear, friends. Darkness represents the realm of spiritual death. And John is saying, hatred characterizes those who are apart from Christ. Hatred characterizes those who are apart from Jesus Christ. Right? If Christ is the prototype of love, Christ is the human prototype of love, then Cain is the human prototype of hatred, of hate. He is the poster child of the unregenerate. He is the one who stands for hatred, the world of hate. In fact, Cain exemplifies one who has been mastered by hate. Notice in verse 12, friends, Cain is of the evil one. This has everything to do with spiritual likeness, which we focused on last week. He is of his father, the devil, who is a murderer and a liar by nature. Let's just turn back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, first book of the Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 4. And let's just briefly read this account of Cain and Abel. I'll begin in verse 1. Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Can't you just hear the contempt there? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain here commits the first act of murder in human history. He was jealous of his brother. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this passage, okay? And I don't know that any of it can be proven. But many, we read this and we think, oh man, they were just young kids. Most commentators and Old Testament scholars would argue that they were probably around 100 years old at this point. And in verse 3, and again, they lived till they're 700, so they're still we people, right? But in verse 3, it says, in the course of time. So commentators will suggest to us that this wasn't the first time they made an offering. In fact, what they're arguing is that since God first slaughtered an animal and clothed Adam and Eve after their sin, that there were sacrifices that were taking place annually since then. That Adam and Eve would have been offering sacrifice to God since then and that they would have taught Cain and Abel to do that as well. Otherwise, why would they have made this offering in the first place? Okay, so this wasn't a new thing. It wouldn't have been the first time and likely wouldn't have been the last time except Cain killed Abel. Okay, so the question for us is this. Why didn't God accept Cain's sacrifice? Why didn't God accept Cain's sacrifice? Well, let me just answer this because there's no easy answer. But I believe that the only thing that we can say for sure, and this is based on Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, is that Abel's sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was offered up with faith. Okay? By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. So what that leads us to think then is this. Cain's sacrifice was offered up apart from faith. There was no faith in God. There was no wholehearted devotion to God in that moment. So whatever he was doing then, when he was offering up his sacrifice, it wasn't true worship. Because apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. So what does this mean, friends? It means this. While Cain may have been doing a very religious exercise when he came to offer up his first fruits from the field to God, when he came to lay before God the fruit of the field, it was a religious exercise, but it was not worship. It wasn't worship. It wasn't offered up in faith. It was self-serving and self-directed. And God warned Cain, But Cain would not listen. So Cain was mad at God. And he wouldn't heed God's warning. And he was filled with rage. Now what does this mean for us? I think this means that some of us need to examine ourselves. Because there are some people, likely in this room today, who are really good at going through religious exercises who are really good at offering up their religious offerings to God. Maybe it's by coming to church. Maybe it's by giving a little money in the offering plate. But there is no faith. There is no love. There is no 
wholehearted devotion to God. And friends, if that's you, you need to listen to what God says to Cain. Because apart from faith, your offering is not worship. It's merely a religious exercise that does not make you right with God. And apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the King, as the one whom through we approach the one true and living God. But I want you to notice the sequence in Cain. There was no faith there was jealousy of his brother, there was hatred, and then there was murder. And in 1 John chapter 3, John is saying that without faith, that those who are without faith, that is the world, hate Christ and those who follow Christ. Isn't that what he says there in verse 13? Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John is saying that the world, those who are apart from faith in Jesus Christ, hate you, followers of Jesus Christ. Now, specifically, it's probably pretty clear that he had in mind the Gnostic false teachers. Okay, But when we speak of the world, as we have throughout this study so far, we're speaking about the unbelieving world, the, the unrighteous, the unregenerate, those who are opposed to the kingship of God. Those who are opposed to the sovereignty of God. Which brings up a question, friends. Why does the world hate Christians? Why, do you, why does the world of unbelievers hate those who are followers of Jesus Christ? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, we read very clearly that those who are in the dark hate the light. Let me just read this for you. John chapter 3. Uh, verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light himself has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus, the light of the world, comes into the world, but the darkness, the realm of sin, hates the light, hates Righteousness. Why? Because it exposes them as evil. It exposes their deeds as evil. In fact, in John chapter 7, Jesus says that the world hates him because he testifies to it that their deeds are evil. In other world, words, the world doesn't want to be held accountable. The world hates the light because it doesn't want accountability. So we can extrapolate then... The world hates Christ. The world hates Christians because the world hates the values that we hold and the lives that we live. The world hates the values that Christians, that followers of Jesus Christ hold and the lives that followers of Jesus Christ live. Why? Because righteous living for the glory of God exposes sinful, uh, fu sinful futility of the world. Righteous living for the glory of God exposes the sinful futility of the world. Righteous living for the glory of God exposes the condemnation that sinners experience. Righteous living for the glory of God exposes the false hopes that the world is uh, hanging on. Friends, to claim that salvation is found exclusively in Jesus Christ is offensive. It's offensive. 
Because when we say that, what we're telling people is, you're not good enough and we're not either. When we say that the only way to be made right with God is through Jesus Christ, what we're telling people is that they're not good enough and their system of thought is not, is not correct. We're saying there is another king. and We're called to humble ourselves before him. But the world hates the fact that it's not good enough. Just like Cain and his offering, he hated the fact that his offering was not good enough. And friends, hate is the proof of spiritual death. Hate is the proof of spiritual death. This is what John is saying in verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Just as the presence of love proves spiritual life, the presence of hate proves spiritual death. That is a characterization by hate. Now let's be clear. John is not saying that murder is an unforgivable sin here. But he is equating murder with hatred, just like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. And followers of Christ cannot be characterized by hatred. Right? Now, it's important we see that hatred is evidenced in actions, in words, and in attitudes. Hatred is evidenced in actions, and in words, and in attitudes. It's an act of murder. It's the attitude of bitterness. It is the words of contempt. And you might be thinking, excuse me, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can't a non-believer really love someone? I have friends who aren't Christians and they love me. And are you saying that non-believing families, those parents don't love their kids? Well, yes and no. No, they do love their kids. And yes, you do have unbelieving friends who do love you. But friends, it's not agape love. It's not the love that John is talking about here. It's not the love that Jesus commands in the Gospels. A non-believer does not and cannot love agape. Remember where we started? Righteousness always works itself out in love. Someone who has not been made righteous by the blood of Christ cannot be righteous and possesses no righteousness, and therefore there is no love that follows, no genuine love that is spoken of here. And it's not that everyone apart from faith in Christ is actively seeking to hurt the followers of Christ. That's not what John is getting at here. But he's just saying that righteousness and love, they go hand in hand. So then we see that hate, in some sense, is the absence of love, right? Verse 14, part B, whoever does not love abides in death. Hatred is seen then in uncompassionate inaction. Hatred is seen in uncompassionate inaction. That's what verses 16 through 18 are all about, right? Hatred refuses to meet spiritual and physical needs when we see them, though we have the opportunity to do so. Hatred sees or becomes aware of a need, a genuine need, but refuses to help. This is what John calls closing one's heart. And what John is saying, whoever does not love abides in death. Oh friend, what is the condition of your heart? 
What is the condition of your heart? You know, some of us just, we just sit like this. There's nothing wrong with sitting like that, but I pray that that's not what's happening in your heart right now. I pray that your heart is not closed off to what God is telling us this morning. What do the vital signs of your heart say about your spiritual condition? Is there love? Is there sacrifice? Is there Is your life driven by faith in Christ and a desire to bring glory to God? Is your life driven by love for your maker? Humble yourself. Friends, some of us need a heart transplant. Only Jesus can make you spiritually alive. Only Jesus can save you from your sin. Humble yourself. Trust Him. Turn from your sin. Be saved this morning. Others in this room need to repent. Because what has become apparent in your life is that there is not clear evidence of love. You're living for yourself. You're living for your own interests and not considering, like Jesus did, the interests of others. You haven't lived a faith-driven, righteous life and it's seen in your refusal to love and to give sacrificially. Some of us need to make, stop making excuses and start loving. Some of us need to start serving the church. Listen, we've been talking about a lot about giving, but it's not just giving, right? It's how we serve. It's how we pray. It's how we move towards others to help, how we listen. All of these things are ways that we can love others. And some of us need to just repent of our uh, uncompassionate inaction and begin to serve and begin to give and begin to help. Is that you? After I pray this morning, we're going to have a time of invitation and surrender. And I pray that you'll respond to what God is speaking to you this morning. If that's, you, need, you know you're not a believer and you need to believe the gospel, then I encourage you now to come and let us share the saving story, the good news with you. Some of you just need to repent because you understand that you've been living a self-centered life and you have self-centered ambitions. But you recognize now that God is calling you to love and to serve. Maybe some of you want to be baptized or join this church. However, God is at work in your life. Will you respond to him? Will you respond to him even this morning? Let's pray together. Great Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your tenderness. We thank you that you are a God who saves. We thank you that you're the God who's in control. And we pray, Lord, that this morning your people would, would worship you and would humble ourselves before you. And that through faith we would give you offerings, that our lives would be the offering. That we would love, that we would give, that we would serve. And Lord, for those who are apart from faith in you this morning, in this room, we pray that your spirit would so work that you'd bring transformation and change, that they would humble themselves and respond to the gospel. We pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand and would you sing in response?